0: You are now listening to the Antip podcast i'm chris miranda your host and today i'm joined by ket Bai, the creator of the voices of vr podcast hello sir how are you on this beautiful sunday afternoon
1: i'm doing really well chris it's really great to be back with you on your podcast
0: dude it's been i think four and a half years since you've yeah. been on the anti podcast
1: that's wow. right i bought I bought my Oculus Rift on January 1st, 2014, and then two weeks later, I entered in the Global Game Jam here in Portland, Oregon, and I created an experience with other people who, between them, had like eight years of Unity experience, and so I sort of went from uh, just diving into VR to have created my first experience within a couple of weeks, and I think we actually, that's how we met, or you may have seen one of my postings on Reddit, and then we chatted, Um, so it was from that, actually, that conversation that we had that I realized as a maker in the virtual reality space, it's hard to get your word out about the experiences that you're creating. And that is in some part why I started the Voices of VR podcast there in May 19th and 20th of 2014. It was uh, thanks in some part to the conversation that we had on the VR podcast.
0: Dude, I uh, I love it. I feel like um, I, I touch a little bit of history every time I go back in time and listen to some of my episodes back in the day. And I'm, I'm glad that you're back. I can't wait to... Philosophize and geek out with with all things virtual reality today with you, um, and I want to start with something uh, really interesting. Or I thought that it's been in my mind for a little while. This generation of um, so so our generation, like millennial, the, the millennial generation, we had something like the Matrix, you know, the the movie the Matrix, and it was the it was a movie that I think changed the perception of how we viewed you know the interaction between reality and c- computers and the possibility that we might be living in a simulation or that might come and i think and, and and that movie inspired a lot of the reason why i got into virtual reality in the first place and i look at something like ready player one and i don't see that having that i don't see that movie having that same effect on gen z you know you know what i'm trying to say like like i i can't like it's not the Matrix for them, and so and so I was hoping that Ready Player One would be that thing, but instead it, it it's it wasn't, and you know I don't, I'm not saying it was a bad movie, but it just didn't have the same impact that the Matrix I wish the Matrix could did have and it could have had I think.
1: I think that the Matrix goes a lot more deeper into the metaphysical concept of what reality is. And I think that the Raider Player One didn't necessarily get it into the split between uh, completely other realms of reality. Um, I've been looking a lot at the sort of... Whoa, hold on <laughs> one second. <laughs> no problem. No <laughs> problem. Sorry, that was my Google Home that I hadn't set up, and it was it was piping in and wanted to participate in the conversation. <laughs> so AI, it's not your
0: time. It's not your
1: time, AI. Um, So the the matrix goes into a lot more depth about these other realms of reality, and it's a much deeper metaphor in terms of like you can read the matrix as like, you know, there's political actors that are trying to control us in different ways. You can read the matrix as like there's another layer of dimension of reality that's a fundamental primary realm of consciousness that's beyond what our material reality is. Um, but it's also, you know, gets to these deeper philosophical questions of like, what is reality? Is it, is it only our sense perception or is there something deeper? Um, I've been rereading uh, The Passion of the Western Mind by R- Richard Tarnas and he goes into the evolution of Western thought and he kind of creates this dialectic where there's these two competing worldviews of uh, the Platonic worldview, which is that there are these uh, eternal realms beyond space and time. Um, and that the way that you interface it with it is through like music and intuition and dialectic and moral virtues and uh, storytelling and myth, and uh, it's like this deeper patterning of reality that you're able to tune into. Um, and then the Aristotelian perspective is much more into empirical reality. The only thing that exists is our, our direct senses. Um, Aristotle actually had a formal causation which allowed for this sort of eternal realm still at some point, but. By and large, it was directed on our empirical direct experiences and what we could sort of experience and falsify. And so we have this dialectic that has continued for the last 2,500 years between these two competing worldviews of whether or not there is a realm beyond space and time. That would be like the panpsychic or the Eastern philosophies or the fact that there is consciousness beyond space and time, that consciousness would be either universal or fundamental. And then the competing worldview of the naturalists or the, the reductive materialists that say only empirical reality exists, there's no metaphysical reality at all. Um, it's just sort of a, a, sort of a, a semantic uh, construct that we're using to describe uh, the patterns of reality. But yet we shouldn't give any deeper ontological reality to these, these patterns and these structures. And so I think the matrix was tapping into that sort of like the, the allegory of, of Plato's cave the, uh, where you know, you're in there, you're seeing the shadows on the wall – and are those shadows on the wall uh, what reality is? Uh, or if you go outside and look at this luminous light, are you going to be so blinded with that truth that you're not going to be able to really see it? And I think that the, the Matrix sort of taps into that idea of that platonic realm uh, much more explicitly than something like Ready Player One.
0: And in a way, it sort of uh, helped me, you know, it, it, when the first time I tried the Oculus Rift CV, uh, DK1, um... I, the fir- Some of the first thoughts that came into my mind were The Matrix, the movie The Matrix, immediately. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, it's happening. It's fi- it's, it's starting to happen now. And, and, and if it wasn't for that movie and the kinds of concepts that it sort of pre- predisposed me to become more open-minded to... Um, yeah, I wouldn't have gone into VR the way I did, and and so it. it, it and, and in that same vein, I feel like Ready Player One had so many other really interesting aspects of that world to present, like a virtual reality economy, like what happens when you use virtual reality in education, and you know, and, and it becomes a part of like a, a more in, in medicine and all these other aspects of, of 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 the world that they sort of just brushed off, and I just feel like it could have been. Uh, um, a more cerebral experience, but I look back and then maybe the book wasn't even that. It wasn't supposed to be that. Maybe it was. Maybe I was trying too hard to make it more impactful than you know it wanted to be. Maybe it just wanted to be a fun movie where people sort of just reminisce on the nostalgia of their characters, you know, being in VR, something like that. I don't know. Well, I think
1: I think we have to we have to go back to 2011 when Ready Player One came out. At that point, there was no Oculus Rift. There was no sort of virtual reality industry at all. I mean, Ernest Klein, as a science fiction writer, his job is to tune into these deeper structures and patterns of reality and to tell the story. And uh, for whatever reason, he was able to tune into basically writing a very prophetic uh, science fiction that became fact within the matter of a year. Mm. Um, It's amazing to see how much progress has been made since 2011 in the virtual reality space with the research and so virtual reality, these head mounted displays and augmented reality on the road towards, you know, starting with phone based AR going towards head mounted augmented reality headsets, uh, especially starting with the HoloLens um, and the fusion of artificial intelligence to be able to do all the computer vision to be able to do all the augmented reality. So. Um, In a lot of ways, if you only look at Ready Player One from the worldview of what was known in 2011, it was extremely ahead of its time. Uh, In fact, it was just like in the near future about to happen. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. And you have this sort of, again, dialogue and dialectic between the creators of virtual reality who are actively reading the science fiction and being inspired to actually create that science fiction vision. And if you go back to like 1999, which is when The Matrix came out, that is in some sense a continuation of what was happening, you know, in the 1989 time frame when uh, the DPL came out. And then a few le- years later, you have the Lawnmower Man, which at that point was probably the the most robust depiction of what virtual reality video games would look like. And so uh, Ernest Klein is kind of picking up on that thread of going from the Lawnmower Man to the Matrix. And now he's extrapolating out what's going to happen if you're able to you know basically explore this metaverse and have a giant video game where you're able to kind of really express your agency and have these social interactions and so it's kind of a continuation of what was started in the long lineage of science fiction and and the movie was sold at the same time that the book was sold like in 2011 and the virtual reality industry has evolved so much and so there's a challenge to try to like keep stuff updated. in some ways it almost feels outdated uh, based upon like what I imagine what things are going to look like in 2045.
0: Yeah, and you know, I, I now that I think about it, you you did mention the word prophetic, and you are correct in that. I had this weird sense of deja vu after reading Ready Player One, the book, you know, and you go into VR chat and what have, VR chat has become now, and and you do get this weird sense of deja vu, like I've experienced this before, I've read this before, I've I've seen this narrative, this storyline sort of envelop in front in front of me or before, and so it's interesting to see that that he had that much foresight. Um, I don't think he could have predicted the meaning, the kind of memes that uh, have come out of, you know, the virtual reality space these days, like the, you know, uh, Ugandan Knuckles and all these other memes. But I, at the same, but at the, the, the whole embodiment of embodying avatars, and and, and uh, I think that really spoke to me and, and that really showed um, to come out as true. And so, and, yeah, well, yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, it- if you look at the alphabet versus the goddess uh, by Leonard Schlein, he's tracing throughout all of history the written word versus the visual uh, language of images and storytelling, and and like he sort of contrasts this like um, yang masculine written word and yin receptive. Um, images and I think you know there's a correlation there between the masculine and feminine but I want to hesitate towards using the genders because that can be very problematic because archetypally we all have some combination of masculine feminine yin and yang I think yin and yang is more of a neutral term to talk about the archetypal dimension of Uh, the sort of yang energy versus the yin energy but uh, he sort of creates this dialectic between the written word being a very yang expression of how we've communicated and that sort of drives certain linear thinking and that the images is something that is coming back and if you look at a 500-year swath of history, you can go back to 1454 and start to see that the printing press was starting to really do this mass democratization of the written word, um, and the images have kind of fallen to the wayside, and I think in this era since 1890, we actually have this… Resurgence of a lot of the um, the images, uh, both from cinema, photography, uh, the moving picture, uh, uh, computer technology, to be able to transmit uh, nonverbal uh, images and te- and just memes and emojis. So, what's starting with text? we I think that we're in this transition, um, and part of that transition of people making culture is through those different memes uh, that are out there, and I think that that is just another indication for what i see as us moving from kind of a a a word-based uh language but also to this sort of post-symbolic language or image-based or embodied experience type of communication that i think is uh, kind of a a return to these more yin aspects
0: yeah the caveman paintings of the past are now the memes that we're using in virtual reality that's right it's, it's come full circle all over again That's super interesting, and you know what I'm trying. What I'm realizing also is that VR is also democratizing experience itself. Like, uh, like now more than ever, people will have the ability to experience not fully like you were in real life, but definitely to a, a really good degree, like what the Grand Canyon looks like. You know, what What does it look like to be at the tip of the top of the tippy top of Mount Everest? You know, what does that look like? I, now I can experience that. I, I don't have to climb the whole mountain to get up there. Now I can just go on Google Earth VR. And so I find it super interesting that VR is, is a, a dem- dem- democratizing force for experience. And I want to know if you have thought about what other aspects of reality is, is VR going to democratize?
1: Well, uh, I've. Interviewed over 850 people now within the virtual virtual reality space since uh, May of 2014. Holy
0: crap! That's impressive. (laughs) Holy moly, man! You're a machine. (laughs) I've
1: uh, I've published about 642, I think, right now. I've got about uh, 200 episodes in my backlog, and I'm going to have a a series of other more conferences I'm going to. And I'm actually trying to figure out how to sort of clear out the backlog and maybe increase and just sort of get through a lot of this stuff. But So I ask people at the end of every interview that I do what they think the ultimate potential of virtual reality is. And what I would say is that um, all of their answers, to some extent, come back to the human experience So if you try to boil down different dimensions of the human experience and look at the human experience, then you can start to extrapolate the different contexts in which we're going to have these different experiences. So whether that's at your home and home and family, whether that's your entertainment, whether it's medicine, whether it's your uh, business partnerships or your relationships, whether it's dealing with death and grieving, uh, being able to do travel, spirituality, higher education, your career, uh, friends and community. Uh, dealing with uh, basically being immobilized in different ways, um, expression of your identity and uh, being able to embody these different avatars and characters and how what that does to your self expression um, as well as like virtual economies and virtual goods and what that means to exchange virtual objects and then uh, communication with your um, starting you know, with with your just people in general but also your early education and and being able to teach yourself and so I see that those are the major contexts um, of virtual reality. And then there's different flavors of experience. And so what the quality of the experience is, um, if you look at the the four elements, either it's going to be stimulating your uh, mental or social presence with the air elements, the Active presence of an expression of your agency, like a video game um, of the fire element, the uh, being able to basically hack all of your sensory experiences and give you like this direct experience through the embodied presence and environmental presence of the earth element. Um, and then finally, the water element is the emotional presence. And so you're a, a level of depth of immersion and emotional engagement and it comes to these virtual reality experiences through narrative, storytelling, plot, music, uh, uh, ambiance, all the things that you create to really attune to the emotions. So you have uh, the context, you have the quality of the experience, and then you have sort of the character of the experience of what the character, the story, the plot of you as an individual wants to explore different aspects of your virtue and your character and your passions. And so um, I think that as I do all these interviews, I kind of come up with what's essentially like this model of reality that's trying to, you know, slice and dice all the dimensions of human experience into these different sort of uh, frameworks that could be used for experiential design, but also to help understand where things are at and what is possible and where things are going. So um, I can make predictions as to what I haven't seen yet, but I expect to see. Um, But also just really in this process of deep listening uh, and engagement within the community, asking these questions and really listening to hear uh, what the ultimate potential is, I usually get a context of an experience, um, asking what people want to experience in VR usually gets the, either the flavor, or the quality of the experience or the, the character or the content of the experience that they want to do. So um, by doing that, I feel like I'm sort of tuning into these deeper patterns of not only reality, but also people's desires of what they want to express as a human uh, and how VR is kind of like this reflection of the human experience. And it is basically an extension of our central nervous system where we can start to explore all these things that we uh, may not be able to do physically on the Earth, but also expand out to all these things that haven't even been imagined yet.
0: You know, I want to ask you about the ultimate potential of VR. And when you ask the question, I, I would imagine that overwhelming, overwhelmingly people say that the ultimate potential of VR is a positive one. Um, but because I believe, uh, I, I, th- I have a feeling, um, I have a thesis, and maybe we can have a dialectic going on over here, um, where I, I feel like um, the ultimate potential VR will be dualistic in nature. So for whatever benefits that VR will bring, there will be equally uh, troublesome uh, consequences or, or non-benefits that will come with it. And so, do you ever get to explore that darker side of virtual reality with your guests? And what sort of ideas or what sort of um, you know uh, non- non-benefits are you are, are people anticipating?
1: Well, I think that's um, first of all, I think you're right in the sense that there is going to be sort of positive and negative aspects. And I, I would say that this is not unique to virtual reality. In fact. I would abstract that out to every single dimension of human technology that has has ever been created can be used for good or bad. And it's actually more of a question of the human morality and ethics of how we decide to use the tools that we create. And that, um, to some extent, the technology is neutral. uh, And that's limited, of course, because it's also happening within the context of institutions and economies and different incentive structures that, you know, it's not always sort of in our best interest. But um generally i would say that um with any tool that's available it could be used for good or evil and i think that uh physicists um eventually created the atom bomb chemists eventually created chemical weapons and dynamite and then computer scientists are going to be sort of dealing with what i think is the biggest uh, struggle in terms of like the, the the tension between uh privacy and your biometric data versus uh, having your right to privacy and your right to have things be ephemeral and not recorded and captured forever and, and tied to your identity, so I think the some of the biggest threats in virtual reality right now are these potentials of all these sensors capturing all this data on us, and that we, uh, if there's a you know the young incentive to uh, capture it and store it and tie it to your identity and profit off of it. Um, From what I've been talking to to different behavioral neuroscientists, what they're saying is that the line between uh, behavioral modification and thought control is really uh, small. When it comes to, like, uh, if you're able to predict behavior, then there's a very small line between what it means to control that behavior. So what that means is that there's a lot of uh, implications for um, all this – data that they're collecting on our bodies. That's like the Rosetta Stone to our unconscious psyche. You'll be able – these technology companies, if they record all this biometric data, will be able to understand us more than we understand ourselves and will be sort of ripe for, you know, surveillance and manipulation and control. And I think the – what – as 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 we go – move forward, we have to really draw the line between what we say, hey, I really want this to be private. Please don't record this at all. There's a a principle within the United States law called the third-party doctrine, which means that any information that you hand over to a third party has no reasonable expectation to remain private. All your emails you use on Gmail, everything that um, you're giving to any service, any data that you're entering, um, all of this stuff is basically like if the government wanted to come and get access to that information, they just have to give a court order to these companies and they have to hand it over. So if they're going to be recording biometric data And then uh, tying it to our identities, that means that the government all of a sudden has access to that data without uh, any sort of like Fourth Amendment warrant protections. They could just ask for it and they have to give it over. Um, What I think was probably going to happen is that they're going to say, you know what, this is going to be anonymized data. We're not going to be able to detect it at all. but. The challenging thing with biometric data is that it may turn out, in fact, I suspect that it will, that all biometric signatures will have a unique like a a fingerprint Mm -hmm. that will be able to be de-anonymized if given access to the full set of data, which means that any EEGs or heart rate variability, um, any sort of body movements that you're letting these companies record, um, your emotional responses, some of these may have sort of unique signifiers that they're able to tie back, even if it is anonymized. So they're going to want to capture it and say, you know, don't worry, this is anonymized. But I'm like, well, is it really? And what are the implications of how this could go wrong? And how can we set up an architecture by which all of the data that's my private data is stored locally on my sh- machine and I don't have to serve it up to like a, a third party, put it on the server to have access to. So I think that the issues around privacy is a big issue. There's around uh, issues just around like, what are the ethics around training people to do various different tasks? What is a dual use technology when it comes to training people to do certain you know military tactical things, for example? Um, in, in making it easy to have a democratized access to sort of like the most sophisticated types of training that you could imagine. Is there a line by which there's things that are going to be okay and not okay. And, um, I, I, just sort of like throw in there that I've been reading a lot about the Chinese philosophy and been reading the Dao to Ching and the Tao De Ching actually has this very specific kind of like balance of being in, in harmony with the Tao. And as soon as you start to write laws then the laws could actually start to, like, create this boundary by which people will go right up to that edge of the law. And, you know, instead of, like, listening to their hearts to feeling what is right. And so I think we have these deeper moral questions as to uh, just as an example and trolling online, for example. um, Like, I think a lot of companies are going to want to try to create technological solutions to solve trolling, which means they're going to create like a surveillance society where everything you do or say is captured so that it could be referred to later. So if there's an incident of trolling, then you could be punished and then basically banned from the system. Um, I have doubts as to the extent to which that you could ever fully uh, control trolling behavior through these types of automated systems. There's ways to spoof your IP. There's always ways to get around it. If people really want to be bad, they're going to be bad. Um, I don't know if we can sort of uh, force it into people uh, to change what they are already doing maybe in real life as well. So it gets into these deeper questions of what is the balance between technology and culture and how do you create these safe online spaces that um, creates rituals and community and sort of a a self-policing type of uh, goodwill And as you scale that out, you have this problem of, like, you may be able to do that at small numbers – but how do you throw all of society in here? And you start to get into these different levels of governance and what are the new models of governance on virtually online? What is the balance between centralization and decentralization when it comes to, like, the centralized powers and be able to control it and the decentralized open web and self-sovereign identity in the blockchain? And how do those sort of give different qualities of experience? So that to me is sort of the a rough sketch of the landscape of some of the, the deeper moral questions that I see.
0: Yeah, I can't buy. I'm under the assumption that as we speak, we are being programmed. Um, we are being programmed by our social media algorithms that want us to continue liking the things that we like and not discover new things. Um, we are being programmed by our media to believe the things that they want us to believe. And so I feel like virtual reality has this potential to program people the likes we haven't been able to before. And and you you were talking about trolling, and I was thinking to myself, well, yeah, you know, maybe we, maybe, maybe we don't have to stop trolling, you know, when it happens. Maybe we could stop trolling at the root by reprogramming people to not become trolls in the first place. I I wouldn't I wouldn't know the first thing about how you would go about doing that, but I have a feeling that you know I'm I've been programmed I, I already I'm, I I can't live without my phone, you know, and so. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, c- could it be possible that we could engineer a new system of education that creates people that don't want to delineate from, you know, common health beliefs that the system in, in, in includes? And, and it, it does it in a way that's super reinforceful because, because everything you think, well, everything you see, everything, every every interaction is going to be recorded by the HMD, um, and I don't know. And and then you can. And then they're going to use machine learning algorithms to like, okay, so this person is behaving in these sort of patterns. So we're gonna and and consider and in and compared to our data that we already have, this this pattern matches, you know, the troublesome behavior. So we can we're gonna target this person to reprogram. I can already imagine, you know, and I'm, yeah, and I can already imagine that happening to a certain degree. Um, and and I and and I wonder like is there something that we can do because we're being programmed right now? can and, and by the time we we realize that we're being programmed in virtual reality, I wonder if it's going to be too late.
1: <laughs> well, I think that you know, Jaron Lanier at TED this year gave a talk that he he talked about in his book, "The Dawn of a New Age" or "Dawn of a New Era," um, where he's talking about uh, how these big surveillance-based capitalism companies like Facebook and Google are essentially like. He calls them behavior modification empires, that um, there is this uh, basic, like, because they're predicting behavior they're at the end of the day, start to control behavior. And as you move into these virtual technologies, then there is an issue of what that means. I think at the end of the day, each of us uh, are individuals and we have the capacity to be able to perhaps discern the messages that are coming in. And so uh, there's an ability for us to be able to really cultivate the type of uh, life and input that we have. But if we are living in a sea of information that um, there are all these other companies that have uh, financial incentives to be able to give us specific messages, then that is going to have this uh, effect of making it feel like we're programmed. And so that's why I've been turning a lot to like Chinese philosophy, because I think they actually turn they have a lot of deep insights into how to have have that have this balance between the yang and the yin and how do you. Uh, be able to have this competition and cooperation how do you express your agency outward and how you listen and receive and i think that if anything there is this uh, shift away from the overemphasis of the young competition um, everybody out for themselves and more of the yen cooperative communal collaborative um, aspects and i think that as we design and and cultivate communities um, I talked to Jessica Outlaw, and she uh, cited um, some of this information from sociological research. So if we assume that it's never going to be possible to technologically engineer culture, that th- by humans by their nature have to have free will and agency and participate in the cultivation of community and culture, that means that you're going to always have some combination of human beings participating and technology that's providing an infrastructure. And what what can you do within that process of uh, trying to form those communities and cultures? Well, the sociological research says that um, some of the production of culture, there's things that you can do that include stories and histories and myths and legends and jokes and rituals and rites of passage and ceremonies and celebration and who you decide is a hero or not, uh, symbols and symbolic action. Attitudes, uh, rules, both explicit rules and implicit rules, uh, norms, ethical codes, and values. Um, These are all of the things that are things that are decided and and collectively agreed upon by humans. It's not – to some extent, you can implement some of these by the technology and encourage them. But at the end of the day, it's going to have to have the humans be able to participate in creating those different types of cultures. And so I think that's probably one of the biggest open questions of what that what does that looks like? Like, how do you actually cultivate and create these communities as we are moving away from a social media that has been so dependent upon the written word and sort of uh, non- Uh, sort of asynchronous communication that's not in real time, as we move into real-time communication in the present, in the moment, you're there, you're having interaction with people, you're embodied in this virtual embodiment, and you have someone's direct and full attention right there at that moment, then what are the different ways that you can start to do that to sort of create these types of experiences that we want? Um, So the Greeks had two words for time. They had the chronos time and the Kairos time. And the Chronos time was very left brain linear. Uh, and I think that uh, with the written text uh, being reading from left to right, we've been stuck in this mindset of Kronos time, which is like you always over plan and schedule everything throughout the course of your day. And it's almost like going from meeting to meeting to meeting. And when you work at a job like that, and you're not attuned to like wanting to really have every moment of your day scheduled then you're not really listening deeply to what is wanting to emerge in the moment. Um, but when you go to a conference, when you go on vacation, when you go to something like Burning Man, you're in this Kairos time where you're really listening deeply to the quality of the moment of that time. And you're able to see what is emerging and and, and sort of have this correspondence between the serendipitous uh, connections that you're able to to meet by the people that you're running into. And I think that as a whole, like VR, virtuality, and augmented reality, as well as artificial intelligence, is in some ways getting us out of the linearization of uh, algorithms that are very fixed and kind of creating these open, holistic, integrative spaces that are going to allow us to find uh, what it means to be in the quality of the moment in time through this Kairos, um, but also this this yen experience of being able to be receptive and being present in your embodied experience and being able to really be fully engaged with your emotions.
0: And, you know, I think that there's something to the idea that virtual reality um, will and, 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 and how it changes your perception of time um, is going to have a, an increasingly um, bigger effect on, on people as time goes on. I honestly, you know, you, and you've had this experience where you play a, a, a particular game. And you lose yourself, and you know you think you've been in there for an hour, and four hours have or six hours have passed by, and you're like, "What happened to time?" And so, you know, it 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 it, it reminded me of that Burning Man esque kind of experience where you're in completely present in the moment, and you allow yourself to be uh, to embrace that moment, you know, more than more than reality itself. And I wonder, like, man, why why is it so easy for VR to you know, for, it's seemingly easy for VR to take away all of your attention and, and, and affect your perception of time.
1: Well, what is time?
0: You just blew my mind. Hold on. I don't. Time is hard to define. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. Well,
1: if you if you look at uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity, there's actually no time variable. Um, Time is built into uh, the structure of space-time. Space and time are interchange. Like you can't separate space from time, and so uh, we we live in a pseudo-Riemannian space at large scales. And so um, that means that like the the way that we actually track how time moves is through the motions of bodies through space so how the sun moves around the earth gives us a sense of the daily cycles how the moon moves around through the different phases gives us a sense of like the monthly cycles uh, how the sun moves around uh, throughout the different z- z- zodiac then you have the entire like seasons and so you have the the cycles of a year um, so in some ways Kairos time is much more about the cyclical nature of time rather than the linearization of time uh, as a, a, a progressive Arrow. It's more of a, a cycles that have beginning, middles, and ends, and you have different connections between those different points. And I think that, to some extent, that's the Kairos time. Uh, that Kairos time is about the cycles and the quality of the moment in time, ra- rather than the quantity of the time. Um, and so, I expect also that um, th- what you're talking about in terms of time dilation, you have this experience of like not being able to accurately uh, tell whether how much time you're spending because you get so immersed. Uh, So you're emotionally engaged and you feel present, but you also get into these flow states. And so, uh, what is it about those flow states? How do you describe them? What is happening? And I think a uh, flow state, what I, what I think of as the flow state is like the the high dimensions of being a, uh, the four elements of the fire element, the active presence of expressing your agency and being able to like do some action and see it take a, like take some effect onto the world. And when you have that correspondence between being able to express your will and take action into a world, then you feel like you have a sense of active presence. The social and mental presence, so if you're interacting with other people that can give you a sense of like being fully engaged in a dialectic of a conversation and being fully present in whatever is emerging and it feels indistinguishable from talking to any other human. The mental presence is like your mental model of the world matches and it makes sense. It's coherent. You'll be able to like solve puzzles and really challenge yourself. Um, the emotional presence is like anytime there's a story or narrative or plot or... There's music and rhythm and color and it just feels like there's an emotional component if you feel really immersed into the experience. And then finally, the embodied presence, that's the earth element, that is the thing where all of your sensory motor contingencies are happy in terms of getting hacked and getting all these senses and as you move your head, you see a correspondence and you get this sense of both the place illusion and the plausibility illusion. You have this virtual body ownership where you feel like you own your body, all the haptics that are coming in, you start to interpret with your mind. And so... As you feel all these different dimensions of active presence, social and mental presence, emotional presence, and embodied presence, you get into these deep, like, uh, mo- in the quality of the moment. And I think that that's a very much of a yin aspect, and it's it, it has this uh, effect of we lose track of the linearization of time. And I think that as we do that, we're going to have people getting more and more into these deep flow states, and they're going to want to like completely re-architect their lives um, because our entire society is run on chronos time. And so um, you really have to kind of make time to be able to go into virtual reality so you could escape time, if you know what I mean. Like you have to sort of like dedicate yourself to say, I'm going to take this moment of time. It's not like a thing you can do for two minutes. You're like, you, you, it's like reading a book. You really fully immerse yourself and you set aside time to escape time.
0: And going into... And, and, and exactly, and I feel like you're you going into VR to um, escape time. It feels like, it feels like, uh, and I and I wonder what will be the macro level impact of all these people all of a sudden having access to Cairo's time, for example, and being able to access flow states. On a, um, I have a I have a feeling, um, or personally, uh, in my experience, to me, losing myself, escaping time, as you say is a therapeutic experience to me it it feels like it's it's really nice to be able to break that linear time cycle pattern and be able to go into virtual reality and and lose myself and find that flow state and then come back and then you feel you know you feel like you get this like wide-eyed like deer in the headlights sort of uh look when you first take off the headset but my mind at least feels like it's been reset a little bit. Like it feels like there's some sort of reset button that got hit, and then and then I came and I came back at it. And so, yeah, I I wonder what will be the macro level impact on people. And I wish this information was more known. Like I w- I really wish VR like we were it could it be possible for us to market VR in a way where like look. This is the flow state machine. Like this is going to give you, this is going to enhance, this is a human enhancement machine. It's not just for games. It's here to enhance you. And so, you know, what do you think it's going to take for, for us to be able to communicate that to the general public? And, and, and do you think that's even appealable to, to, to people?
1: Well, I think that uh, virtual reality as a medium, first of all, is not going to go away. Um, it's it's more of a matter of how long it's going to take in order for people to start to really fully adopt all these technologies. Uh, but also the content has to be there to be able to really be designed in order to really uh, uh, use the unique affordances of this medium. I would argue that the thing that's new about virtual reality is the embodiment and being able to hack your uh, sensory experiences. And so to some extent, what the HTC Vive has done with doing full room scale, with really prioritizing having super awesome tracking so you don't lose tracking. And what um, Oculus has done with front-facing cameras actually has created this fracture of embodiment where you actually have to use your mind to make sure that you're not going to be um, turning around and, and breaking like the tracking because you have to sort of put yourself into the box of only facing in a certain direction which has created like this level of abstraction i mean even the controllers on the oculus have buttons on them which means that they were designing it with in mind for the abstractions of a video game culture which means that a lot of the games that they've been designing using those buttons are actually not like the full unique affordance of virtual reality in terms of embodiment now, there's there's going to be sort of real-time strategy and sort of mental presence, games, and, you know, that are going to be well-suited for that, as well as even actually doing manipulation of objects and doing, like, work, um, you know, like... Doing some professional applications, for example, it's, it's easier to have those buttons there. But by and large, I think that virtual reality is about the removing of those abstractions. And I think from an experiential design perspective, there haven't been too many people that have really pushed the edge of that. Um, I think one genre that I love and I think is going to explode here um, within the next month or so is the rhythm games. So things like uh, Audio Shield as well as Soundboxing, uh, where you have these. Uh, balls that are coming at you and you are receiving them and you're moving your body in order to hit them, but you're listening to music at the same time. So Beat Saber is about to come out on Tuesday and I've been had a chance to have been playing it. Um, the release of it and it's absolutely amazing. Uh, and the videos of it, uh, with people in mixed reality playing it, they just look like total badasses as you feel like you're like this samurai ninja being able to like have this experience where people look at it and they're like, oh my God, I want this in my life. I want to experience this. Um, And so I think it's going to be like experiences like Beat Saber that people really see the magic of embodiment and immersion when it comes to music and being able to really embody music in different ways, because the way they've designed the, the, the gameplay, it's matching the rhythm of the music. And so You are moving your body in a way that is actually mimicking what is happening in the music. And so in some weird way, um, you get this deeper connection with that music. Um, The the Greeks had four words uh, or four things that they would study. They would study uh, arithmetic, which was number and math. Uh, Then they would study number and time, which was music. Uh, then they would study number and space, which would be geometry, and then number and time and space, which would be astronomy. And so you have the quadrivium, those four things, and I think that um, the Pythagoreans believe that all was number, um, and some cosmologists like Max Tegmark and uh, his book uh, talking about our mathematical universe also sort of gives forth this, you know, mathematical universe hypothesis that at the base reality is mathematics, that there's some sort of, um, from a platonic idea, there are these potential mathematical objects beyond space-time that are controlling what is emerging within physical reality. Um, So given that, uh, I I expect to see uh, this shift from what we have now, which is this huge uh, emphasis on the philosophy of science, on empiricism, on sort of the... uh, naturalism of only thing that exists is this physical reality there's no metaphysical reality uh, that exists beyond space and time that is the aristotelian perspective basically and i think that what is happening is that we're going to be sort of re-inspired by this platonic idea of like the eternal realm that is timeless and at these archetypal expressions of beauty that you're going to have a direct experience of that within virtual reality i mean i saw the Michelangelo statue and virtual reality at SIGGRAPH. And it was one of the most sort of like spiritually profound experiences that I've had in virtual reality was to be up close and to see the platonic uh, expression of an archetypal expression of David, which in itself was an archetypal expression of the ideal form of man, which was inspired by Plato. So I think that we're going to be sort of getting into this more platonic idea of like, that there might be things that exist beyond the realm of space and time. I think it's actually mathematics that the philosophy of mathematics has preserved this Platonic tradition. And there's been a bit of a split in the Western mind. When when you talk to uh, mathematicians, if you ask them the direct, what is the nature of a mathematical object? Is it invented or is it discovered? Most of them have the direct experience of discovery. Like they don't feel like with their mind, they're. Just, like creating these objects and uh quine was uh this uh, logical positives like uh like platonist to some extent where he was like arguing that if if you are using mathematical objects to be indispensable for your descriptions of reality then we actually need to give ontological like a realism to these mathematical objects um because a lot of in our culture, we sort of see these math objects as socially constructed they 're not real, but if they 're socially constructed, then why do they work if they 're socially constructed, then why does quantum electrodynamics have a level of precision to twelve decimal points uh, if they're, if they 're constructed, then why did something that was a math toy in a the theory of general relativity create something that is able to describe the the dimensions of space time to a level of precision that is beyond credulity? So I think the, the big open question to me is, what are the nature of these mathematical objects? Do they exist in this non-spatial temporal realm beyond space-time? And are they interfacing with us uh, in some way? And I think that what I expect and what I predict is that as people go into virtual reality, they're going to get inspired by like this uh, recogniz- like recognizing these platonic forms and these ideals. If you look at um, what happened at Sundance this year, you there was one experience called spheres where you actually go into a black hole so you have like the archetypal experience of seeing the ideal form of something that no one has ever seen before in an embodied experience which is stepping into and going into a black hole well and there was a beautiful story that was around it as well where you actually embody the star and you you go through this transformation and you turn into a hole and you go and you see this spaghettification of light and it was like a, this transcendent experience that got sold for over a million dollars. Um, so when I see that, I, I see that it's it's sort of in this like leading indication that as we start to like reimagine what these mathematical forms are, as we have these direct experiences of them, uh, we're going to sort of be re-inspired by them.
0: I'm excited. I, I'm definitely excited for uh, people being inspired to think outside of you know what is what is the realm of possibility um and 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 i don't mean to bring you back to the empirical world but i i but i something you mentioned over beat saver and um and the beat rhythm games that are that are coming up something that i've noticed um i'm under the impression that the most one of the most effective ways to witness neuroplasticity is by playing audio shield because what happens is, as you play a beat, a beat rhythm game like Audio Shield, the your brain becomes. Um, it seems like recognizing at First, it starts as like, oh, I can recognize the patterns a little bit easier. Oh, okay, it's it's. Uh, I can recognize the patterns a little bit further now. You know, I can I can see that there's three balls coming up ahead, and I can predict where my hands are going to be. But later on, as you keep going, then you're not. Then it becomes like. Automatic, Like you're not even yeah. thinking. And, and that is really, really, really cool. Like you, like you can do that almost in real time that you can witness that. You know, most people don't, t- don't um, really think about how their brain can change itself. And here we are being able to witness it mm-hmm. in real time um, with, with VR. And there's so many other ways you can do it. But I just feel like it's so, it's so visceral when you experience it in VR.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, in terms of um, what I would describe is it kind of an unconscious process. When you learn how to speak, um, you and, and understand language, um, it's sort of an unconscious process by which, like, you don't you can't describe to me why you're able to turn the sounds that are coming out through my mouth, hitting your ear and being translated into your brain into the words that I'm talking about, which is like this meta process by which, as you're thinking about it now, you're thinking, well, how does that actually work? Well, it's an embodied process. It's like our bodies are doing that. It's totally unconscious. We don't even think about it. And so uh, if you think about the different levels of sort of the, the cone of experience at the highest level, you have like abstract thought and our mind that we have access to. And that's sort of like the air element. But yet, once you start to get down a certain level, you have our behaviors, our habits, our emotions, as well as our sort of embodied uh, processes that are able to translate all this visual signals and auditory signals. It gets translated into our brain and then, you know, it gets sent to our brain. At some point, it gets turned into this massive picture of a movie, as well as with like this running commentary and narration that's happening all at the same time, which which is essentially what we call a consciousness um so in virtual reality, you're able to do exactly that, which is start to train your body at an unconscious level to be able to do things it wasn't able to do before, which is why Strivers started with being able to train quarterbacks, which is that they were taking just like uh, three sixty video footage and being able to uh train quarterbacks how to have this level of being able to see the entire field. Well, when you play something like audio shield or soundboxing or beat saber, you're training your body to basically become like an athlete a professional athlete where you're seeing these objects coming at you and the more that you repeat it the more that you're able to at an unconscious level you don't even have to think about it and when you start to actually like move your body and get the right motions uh, right without even actually think about it that is like the definition of a flow state of your like prefrontal cortex gets turned off and it just becomes like an embodied interaction and so We are like training ourselves to be like professional athletes (laughs) every time we play these types of experiences. But um, I think that's the magic is that you you get this exercise, you get this endorphin kick, you get in there, you're able to see like this game progression curve, which is like you're able to do more and more unconscious processes. Um, And the thing that reminds me of is the David Eagleman who has the neosensory vest. The neosensory vest can turn your body into an ear. So this concept of sensory substitution and sensory addition um, happened like it first was came up with in like 1969 uh, where you're able to like as long as your brain receives the signals, it can figure stuff out. So if you're deaf. And you can translate those audio uh, sound waves into, like, the different frequencies that basically your cochlea and your ear breaks it down to different frequencies and sends it to your brain. Well, if you're able to, like, back engineer that data architecture and figure out what input your brain needs and be able to send it through other parts of your body. So if you put on this haptic vest that's translating that audio into those sound waves and into the the data structure that goes into your brain – then if you see the visual correspondence of that, your brain figures it out and you can train yourself if you're deaf to be able to hear. Um, So what does that mean? Well, it means that you can replace senses through the haptics, but you can also add completely new senses that we didn't even have before. So what kind of information is out there that's invisible to us that will all of a sudden be visible to us if we decide to detect it with these sensors, translate it and send it into our brain with the right signal? Um, the other thing that reminds me of is the, this concept of homuncular flexibility, which is stuff that Jaron Lanier, Jeremy Balanson, as well as Mel Slater have studied, which is uh, we have evolved from a lineage of different animals and entities, including, you know, fish and apes. And, you know, it goes sort of way back to the evolutionary scale. Eventually, you go all the way back to like single cell organisms. But we, we used to be monkeys and apes. We used to have a tail um, and they found that in virtual reality, like there's some aspects of our brain that still understand how to process what it feels like to have a tail. So you can have a virtual tail in virtual reality. You can see it moving around. And as long as you're giving like haptic feedback that is uh, re- relating to the world in some ways and you're seeing that visual correspondence, then people have reported being able to actually feel these virtual tails as if they had a tail, which to me is mind blowing. And I, I definitely want to experience what that feels like, especially if it takes time for you to train your body. Uh, The thing that David Eagleman said about trying to teach yourself to be able to hear through your torso. um, So you're sending the signals through different parts of your body. If your brain is already seeing that information and it's redundant, then it sort of rejects it because it's like you don't need it. And there's a higher fidelity of the signal that's coming from a channels that's already used to it coming in. But our bodies are able to take in all of this information and so the big open question is like, what kind of new senses can we do? What kind of new uh, human potentials that did we have that we don't know about? Um, are there things that the Eastern religions that have been doing to be able to train your body, to be able to silence your body? Are there ways to do like consciousness hacking so that you can bypass doing meditation for uh, 20 to 50 years in order to you know, attain these super normal city powers that um, Dean Radin talks about in the book, super normal? So um that's what I get excited about is that you we have this open like potential of what's possible with the human potential uh theoretically we see this this body is like a GPU It's like this parallel processor of information and data and then we could start to send all this data into our body and our body just kind of figures it out and I think we're at this point kind of replicating reality at this point but what are the different archetypal dimensions of reality or symbolic reality can we start to sort of summarize different aspects of a world and give us a direct experience of that
0: if I were able to enhance my body to add a new sense it would be the ability to have a hyperactive Uh, magnetic system like like the pigeons like or or like animals that never get lost because they and you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna go directly to the beach and i'm gonna go find quarters and nickels and uh, (laughs) i'm gonna get rich i'm gonna get rich i'm telling you well
1: (laughs) no i think actually um eric metzinger actually is that they um call them southpaws people who would wear magnetic things on their on their um foot And that would tell them where north was every, you know, I don't know, five or 10 minutes or whatnot. But what he said is that people kind of report like not remember, not sort of noticing anymore, but that they sort of cultivate this awareness of being able to always know what direction north is. Um, I think that uh, that's what I expect, is that um, as people uh, come up with these augmented and virtual reality technologies, they're going to want to be able to maybe align themselves with the cardinal directions. Um, maybe they want to be able to uh, be just more connected to the cycles of nature, for example. And I think uh, being able to look at a shadow, for example, and know what time of year it is and know like. What time of day it is, um, if you want to, or if you just you have a, a deeper intuition of of kind of uh, cultivating, you know, more of a Kairos time relationship with nature in a way that is a less sort of linearized in that way. And I think that um, the the challenge here, though, what I would say is that there's going to be a, a, a desire to want to overlay lots of information and data on top of something that we already are fundamentally disconnected from. So if we have no intimate connection to the Earth and to nature, then do we really want to be running around with augmented reality glasses overlaying another layers of information that are further dissociating ourselves from our land and the people around us? I think... The that's where the Chinese philosophy really comes in again, where I expect that the real magic of these augmented virtual reality technologies are going to be much more about yin. Uh, it's about centering you in your experience, centering you in your environment, centering yourself in the people that are around you coming into deeper relationship to the earth rather than sort of doing all these sort of uh, crazy games layered on top of reality, which I think will actually happen. But if you look at something like Pokemon Go, I think a, a big magic of that was that it got people connected to their their region their land where they would go to landmarks that they didn't know about or it would allow them to have an experiences in the real world but also be able to meet up serendipitously with other people who may have uh, similar values or, or you know you have this sort of emergent social connection that would happen and so um, thinking less about how the technology can al- overlay sort of layers of data but uh, thinking about how it can actually make us more connected to both the land and the people people around us as well as our emotions.
0: And that's going to be the thing that's going to create the killer apps of the future, you know, because people these are uh, instinctual things that we need in our lives that people crave. People crave social interaction without them without them realizing it whether you know it or not you your your mind craves that. And so uh, being able to provide that with virtual reality or augmented reality that that next layer of connection um, is going to be huge. It's going to be de- really huge. Now, let me ask you this. I, I have a question about um your prolific nature in podcasting. How have you done so many episodes? How did you do it, man? It's 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 like holy crap. I'm like I uh, every time I like I I I think about it. And I'm like I can't even. I, how did he do this? Like it's, it's wow. It's so little time. It's amazing.
1: Well. Well, I would say that I've been harnessing the magic of Kairos time. So uh, probably 95% of my podcasts have been unscheduled and unplanned. Um, I will go to a conference and I will do anywhere from 10 to 30 interviews. Um, The very first VR, I did like 46 interviews uh, and I was doing short interviews, 10 to 15 minutes. But the interviews that I do now are anywhere from 20 to 30 to 45 minutes up to an hour or more sometimes. But um, so I will go to a conference. I've been to 40 to 50 different conferences uh, about virtual reality, uh, as well as some stuff on artificial intelligence and other um, sort of other. uh, I went to a math conference, for example, and other esoteric topics as well. But I will go to a conference and I will engage people and, and I'll basically roam around see who I run into. I'm sort of uh, I'm known within the community enough that people will either find me or I know enough people in the community or I will try to track down uh, people that have just given a talk or I will go and have a direct experience of a virtual reality experience and then talk with whoever created it right there in the moment. So I kind of consider myself an experiential journalist in the way that I try to really have a direct experience of the thing that people have created as much as I can. And the easiest way for me to do that is to actually go and travel to these different conferences to see these um, experiences live in the moment and then have a conversation with whoever created it. And I think it's that level of, um, I guess, uh, experiential journalism that – has a bit of a shamanic element, which is that it's unscheduled and unplanned. So I have to really do a lot of deep listening as to what is emerging. And if anything, if anybody who's gone to a conference and then decided to not go to any scheduled uh, uh, sessions – you can have some, like, really magical experiences of just kind of running into people and these serendipitous magical connections that you have that end up, to me, being, like, way more compelling to, than sitting in and listening to the lecture. Um, so for me, I want to really engage uh, and have high agency and roam around and engage in these conversations. And so uh, that's what I've done for the past, uh, I guess, uh, four years coming up on May 19th. Um, I will have done, like, you know, over 800. Oh, I'm coming I'm, I'll have a whole a series of, like, I'm going to F8 and then VRLA and then um, uh, Microsoft Build and then Google I.O. back to back to back to back. So it's like I'll have those uh, developer conferences. uh, And then, uh, yeah, then I'm going to another one at the end of May. But basically there is – by the time I have my uh, four year anniversary, I'll probably done about 900 interviews or so.
0: Holy moly. Holy moly. I've, I've, I've just hit 200. I've just barely hit 200. And I, I'm i a lazy fuck. I, what can I say? And so
1: you do you do in-depth conversations, though. You Your average length is probably 90 minutes to two and a half hours. I mean, I don't know how long, but that, you, you dive for- deep.
0: I'm, I'm also a scatterbrain. I, I I'll like, I like, I like, uh, I'll be. And you know what it is, Kent? I get imposter syndrome really hard. Like, I'll feel like, I'll feel like, man, why the fuck are people listening to me? Like, I should, I should go make something. I should go build something. You know, do you ever get imposter syndrome? Do you ever feel like, you know, you're, you're surrounded by immensely intelligent people and then you feel sort of inadequate. Like, why should anybody listen to you? And And do you, if you do deal with it, how do you deal with it?
1: Well, I started into virtual reality having made two or three experiences, and it's been a while since I have made something for myself. And I do think there is a connection between makers and people covering it that you do have a different perspective. And so, um, but at the same time, uh, I think both you and I are engaged in these dialectics and in these conversations is where a lot of the true knowledge about this field emerges. Uh, and so, uh, like I wouldn't like for me personally, I feel like confident enough in my own sort of like, uh, frameworks of models of reality that I sort of use that to, as a, uh, as almost like a way to navigate it. Uh, but also my own direct intuitive experience um, at the end of the day, each of us has our own temperament about what we like to experience in VR, what we like and what we want to experience in VR. I mean, there's probably going to be things that you want to experience in VR that maybe no one else in the world has even thought of wanting to experience. But yet once you create it, then it's going to be the exact thing that like everybody in the world needs, or maybe not everybody, but at least a significant portion or some small portion of people that match your temperament in some way. So that's how I, I think about it, at least is that like we're all like got this. Unique perspective and our u- unique sort of combination of different dimensions of our personality and and our being, and that we all have gifts to be able to give out into the world. And if there's anything that virtual reality is doing, it's that uh, instead of going into a, a a culture that's really passively consuming, this new experiential age is really demanding all of us to really fully participate in all different ways. Yeah. And so. Culture has been mostly being produced by these major corporations and sold to us. But as we move forward, I think by the time we hit the, the realm of 2045, I think we're going to actually see more Ugandan Knuckles memes that are self-generated. So a culture that's generated by the people – rather than these stories that are generated by these huge, massive corporations, I think we'll always have these massive stories that are, are kind of speaking to the myths of our era. But at a certain extent, a lot of those myths and stories that are being told are being dictated by what's going to be a safe enough bet to be able to invest that much money to be able to actually you know, do this uh, this franchise. And so you have this sequel syndrome of like, not really pushing the boundaries of these new stories. And I think that as we move forward, uh, immersive and interactive storytelling is going to be all about you having your own sort of direct experience of the story that you're experiencing. And so to me, the, you, you have this shift between, uh, the spectrum between uh, authored stories and generative stories, where the authored stories is what you go see in a movie. It's somebody wrote a script and then they made it with actors and there's very little in which you, the audience, is changing how that story is unfolding. And as we move forward, it's going to be becoming more and more of an immersive theater experience, and maybe even more like an open sandbox that is like a personal depth psychological exploration of your psyche, and and different experiences that are going to be really attuned to you as an individual. Um, but as we go towards that, we're going to be into these immersive and interactive stories. We're going to have artificial intelligent intelligent agents that have personalities and temperaments, but also like a story arc that's unfolding. And so there's going to be these drama managers that are telling you a story, but you're going to be able to be engaged in a dialect in in a, in a conversation either with other live actors that are with you or other sort of AI agents. But the, where this is all headed when to this experiential age is this kind of model of immersive theater where you have more and more agency, more and more ability to be completely immersed, more ability to use your body to move around spaces and more ability to make choices, and to really interact socially with other people. And, and I think um, as we as the medium evolves, that, that's what I expect to see, is that you know by the time of Ready Player One 2045, we're gonna see a lot more immersive, interactive, deaf psychological experiences that are attuned to individuals, and that they're gonna be very transformative. Uh, as we go from the information age to the experiential age, the next thing after experience is transformational experiences, We're not going to just want to have any experiences. We're going to want to have experiences that are deeply meaningful and personal and attuned to us that help us grow and evolve and change and transform.
0: Yeah. Uh, and hopefully that'll be a model that will be adopted widely by educational systems. I, I dream of a world where uh, HMDs are in every classroom and they're being taken advantage of properly um, with you know, just the ability to accelerate learning with an HMD. Uh, we're, we're sitting on a gold mine of potential or future Einsteins. And, and here we have the technology to enable them the uh, possibility to really extend and reach out into the stars. And yeah, I, it's exciting and i i'm really excited for it now
1: I, actually yeah. let me just i'm going to say one thing cuz i i went to the joint mathematics meeting and i was covering mathematics because of this platonic ideal of, like, you know, uh, is base reality math? And so I did, like, these 37 interviews with mathematicians about the philosophy of math. But the thing that I wasn't expecting at this math conference was the focus on education. Uh, Math education is a huge topic within the field of math because uh, not only are there people doing sort of, like, research into pure math, but most of the people that are in the math field are teaching other people how to learn math. And what I'm finding is that there's a huge revolution that's happening in math education where a lot of people have been completely traumatized by how they were taught math. Um, it may have been sort of you lectured at and then you have to basically like be like if you unless you learn in a very specific way of a of being lectured within a room then you're not going to really get that full information and so it's much more socratic method so using the socratic dialogue asking questions getting people engaged having them participate using their body um being really using the principles of embodied cognition to really fully understand and also storytelling and finding the deeper stories of of the, the history of ideas and the different sort of like personalities and who was involved with this and so you have both story embodiment active participation and and mental stimulation and And so I see as we move forward, we're going to have this complete revolution of how we even think about education uh, as this sort of holistic experience. And and for people to really get inspired by what is not known. I mean, there's so much about science and education of, of things that we know, but there's so many questions of things that we have no idea about. Like, what is the nature of a mathematical object We don't really know. Is it discovered? Is it invented? Is it some sort of like combination of the two? Is it like a process of social construction with our consciousness as a community that is involved with these eternal forms that are planting seeds into the ground? And do we have to somehow cultivate it as a group and as a community? And so what is the interface between this eternal realm and the aspects of human consciousness? I mean, when I was in math, they never asked me those questions. I would have been like, wow, that's a fascinating question. Is math invented or does it, is it discovered? And like, maybe I have something to, to contribute to this larger dialectic of, of what that actually means and what is the interface between fate and free will is, is the, the essence of like the fatedness of the eternal form and the, and the free will of a community that is coming together to ideas is Math is the intersection of fate and free will. I mean, I never had anybody like tell me that. So I think as we move forward, um, that's what I expect to see is that as we move into an experiential education, we're going to be inviting people to be able to be inspired to explore these concepts rather than to uh, learn a lot of data that they have to memorize to be able to take a standardized test. And I think we're going to be moving away from the standardized testing model and more to a Socratic method of you know, asking people questions and asking them to really participate in the construction of their own learning
0: yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm with you 100%. And I wanted to ask you, speaking of free will, um, I'm sure you exercise free will once in a while where you have a, a potential guest that turns out that, you know, maybe I don't want to interview this person or maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should, maybe this person isn't ready. Like, do you ever run into that? Like, how, do you have a, or, or are you more like, ah, yeah, let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens kind of style. What's your style when you choose who to interview or... Of that process?
1: Well, I usually, uh, um, it's an embodied interaction face to face at a conference and I will either go up to somebody and ask, um, some, not le- less often people will come up to me, um, and sort of ask to be interviewed. And sometimes I do that and sometimes I don't it just kind of depends. Um, I always usually try to prefer to have a direct experience about whatever someone's created if possible. Uh, that just gives me a sort of a grounding of what people are really, uh, focusing on and creating, and there, there's a, a wide range of different reactions. Um, the thing that comes to mind is sometimes um, people, if they're if they haven't announced it and they're not ready to talk about it publicly, and it's still sort of in a in a phase of being gestated, and they're not ready to announce it to the world, um, then I can totally understand why they may want to actually release it into the world before I, we talk about it, because it's it's always a lot better to um, have something that's I can experience to talk about it. But sometimes. The process of ideas, like you have to have the idea before you've made anything, and you have to talk about the idea before you actually make it, um, and to really get other people excited about it so they they can help you actually make the thing that hasn't been created yet. And I think that's actually the thing that I've found has been the more challenging aspect is that when you look at diversity within the larger virtuality ecosystem, Uh, people who don't have access to power or privilege or money or resources, whether uh, they might be from minority communities or uh, women within the tech industry, Um, they may have ideas, but they haven't been able to actually create um, a a demonstration of that, which means that I've had to sometimes find creative ways to be able to talk about it before it's been uh, actually manifest into an experience that I can have. Um, And, you know, sometimes, sometimes I've had, um, Experiences where all and I think this actually sort of it it gets to women within the VR industry and technology as well. If I will do an interview with a woman um, and they feel like um, they were tired or they didn't necessarily um, speak in a way that they've uh, felt comfortable with. Sometimes we've done the interview in a way and I've sent it to them and they're like, you know what, Uh, I don't think that this shows me in my best light. And there's just higher risks uh, and stakes for women in technology where if they're perceived in a certain way, it could have more of an implication of their future work than it does for men. Like I, I haven't had any men that have really done that for me. Um, and so, yeah, there's and there's also like – I mean I have a backlog of 200 interviews. So sometimes I will do an interview and if it um, – and, and then when I, when I actually decide when to, to put an interview out – Every day when I wake up, I will have an idea of what I want to maybe talk about. Uh, and then maybe if I wait for an hour or two, then that will change. Or maybe, you know, that'll change for two or three times over the day. And so it's sort of like this crazy sort of dipping back into the past to pull out an interview. Um, and so it's sort of like this this big pool of, of content. Uh, in some ways, I want to get away from that and just do like more of a live streaming mode where everything that I'm doing is live and in the moment and it's out there. Um, but at this moment, I've been... Doing a lot of the interview and then the, uh, so then I I do, it's like an alchemical process really where I will go to a a conference, I will see who to interview, I will interview like 20 to 30 people, I will come home, I'll pick one interview to do, I'll listen to it, I'll edit it, I'll, I'll cut out all the ums and ahs, I'll sort of really distill it. And then I'll listen to that and then I'll record an intro and an outro and then I will record and then I'll edit that. And then I put it all together, uh, give it a name and then I'll write it up and then I put it out. And all of that takes about four to five hours per episode. Um, And that whole process of that distillation. And um, I think that now that I've done that a lot, one of the things I'm wondering is, uh, is that sustainable to continue to do that as I want to expand out fully into covering all the stuff in VR in AR covering artificial intelligence, which I've done about 100 episodes and released about five for the Voices of AI. I've recorded a bunch of Voices of Math podcasts that I haven't released yet, and I have a whole other set of more sort of esoteric, spiritual, consciousness-related topics that um, I have as well that um, I've released probably about 170 of those and, and haven't released you know another 50 of those that I've recorded that I haven't put out. So it's a lot easier for me to record the content than it is to sort of push it, put it out and i want to be able to sort of be more of in a flow state of uh, getting everything that i've created out and then sort of seeing what else sort of comes in and seeing how that evolves
0: do people ever approach you for and ask you for like uh, hey kat do you have any practical advice for me i want to be part of the vr industry do you what what should i do you know where where where, where should I go? What's the best, uh, where, where are the best returns? Where's the best research on any particular subject? Like what sort of advice would you give to people that want to become involved in VR today?
1: Well, I have um, actually both done a lot of sort of informal mentorship of people as they come up to me at conferences or um, sort of offline um, different conversations I've had. <clears throat> and I think that um, by and large, like there's actually a lot of people who have gotten completely bootstrapped into the VR industry by listening to the Voices of VR podcast backlogs because I think it gives both a diversity of what's happening in the industry, but also a language of people learning and conversation and learning from the dialectic where you can kind of like let it absorb into your unconscious and you sort of just have it in your body a lot more. And so but what the advice I would give for people is kind of try to pick out what is really interesting to you and what problems that you're trying to solve and um, see what you're drawn to, if you, like what experiences that you're drawn to. And then, I guess, figure out from there what role you'd want to sort of really play there, whether it's a user experience or experiential design or programmer or art or, you know, architect. um and I think that the more that people actually iterate and create experiences, that's probably the best experience that you can have is actually be engaged in the process of creating. So if you're not, uh, and probably one of the best ways to do that is like going to a game jam, uh, the global game jam, or there's different VR jams that are happening. And when you do that, then you're able to really, uh, interface with, um, you know, a team of people for 48 hours and, and to create uh, some sort of experience. Um, but, uh, but for any, anybody who's wants to get in, into the virtual reality field, probably one of the most important things is to, just to be immersed within the content that's being generated and to be kind of fluent with whatever is happening. And the more that you can get the flight time of being in VR and to experience it, then uh, you're going to have that direct embodied experience. And it's not going to be abstract. Like when I did the um, – when I first started the Voices of VR podcast, I did 46 interviews in a day and a half at SVVR. I think I maybe did one or two demos. Um, I was so focused on trying to capture like an oral history of the people that were there that I really deprioritized seeing much of the experiences. And in some ways, I've tried to almost do the opposite, where when I go to a conference now, I try to prioritize seeing as much of the content as I can. And then and then after that, use that to be able to drive who I want to talk to based upon what I've seen and what's new. So. At this point, I've seen probably 2,000 or 2,500 different experiences in the VR uh, realm by going all to these conferences, as well as stuff that I've seen on my uh, home, at home on my computer. And I think that having that embodied experience of what is happening was probably going to be some of the most valuable things that you can do. But, yeah, just trying to pick what industry and just start networking. And, you know, a lot of people have um, uh, have been on my podcast and they'll say that they've reached out to people who have been on my podcast. And so just... Engaging a conversation and a dialect with people who are engaged in actually, you know, creating this industry.
0: Yeah, and the thankfully, the virtual reality industry is fairly. It's fairly. It's a fairly. fairly friendly bunch of people. Uh, we uh, we we don't bite. We we're, 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 if you if you ask us for questions or advice, we're we're usually very open and and um, down to help out whenever we can. Now the other question I had for you was, and this is a question I ask every every conversation I have on the on the podcast, is just because I want to get people's different perspectives of what is the current state of virtual reality at this point, Kent? By
1: the current state of VR, um, it's a new medium. Um, and it's, it's part of a 500-year cycle of experiential technologies, of which I'd say we're probably about 120, 130 years into that. So uh, in the realm of uh, electricity and computing technology, um, like I see computers as the printing press of our era. And as like the printing press democratized access to information and knowledge, I think computing technologies – whether it be VR, AR, AI, cryptocurrencies, um, all these different dimensions of of how we're using internet technologies, web technologies to to do all the different dimensions of human experience, that it is a reflection of our human experience. And so at this point, um, I think there's a bit of like, there's applications that are already killer applications for medicine, for architecture, engineering, design, For training, especially, is a huge thing Um, in virtual reality right now is, like, being able to train people um, both in, like, you know, high-end elite sports, but also, like, training people at Walmart how to deal with, like, you know, the Black Friday sales that are coming up, like, the once-in-a-year event that you're hiring a bunch of extra staff to come in, and how do you get them to know what to do? Um, And you know also like so you you're going to start to see this blending of artificial intelligence natural language processing um, being able to have more intelligent interactions and as the ai gets better it's going to be able to perceive the world better so we're going to be able to to see like artificial like augmented reality experiences as well so i would say by like like there's two milestones that i look at there's like 2025 which i'd see as kind of like the flourishing of all immersive technologies uh, augmented uh, virtual reality technologies will likely have some more uh, consumer-based, head-mounted, augmented reality displays by that point. I think that uh, artificial intelligence will be so good that, you know, you'll be able to, like, uh, be able to speak and it'll be be able to be understood. We'll be getting rid of a lot of the abstractions um, uh, of buttons and whatnot, I think, for uh, being able to more natural, intuitive uh, things with our hands. Um, And then by 2045, that's sort of the era of the Ready Player One, I do think that, like... Maybe we'll be at like direct neural injection or um, there'll be this split of people who want to be really invasive with the technology and people who want to be really sort of uh, using the technology to be able to like center themselves and, and grounded into the the human experience. Um, I had a, a experience with my wife um, the other day where I was at this rhododendron garden and I was looking at the, the flowers and I was imagining I, I want to be able to see like um, someone to come in, for example, and do a photogrammetry of this bush over the course of like once a day for a year. And then, uh, the next year to be able to extrapolate what this bush is going to look like. And for me to be able to see how it evolves over time. And I told it to my wife and she's like, no, that's terrible. I I don't, I, I don't want to be in the garden with you doing that. Like you doing that in the garden, if this road to dinner garden of the crystal springs to dinner garden is going to actually disrupt my experience of being present with nature because you're going to be dissociated off into this mental education space and i'm going to be wanting to try to really just connect with the land there and so i think uh, as we move forward uh into 2025 and 2045 i expect that there's going to be a lot more people who are going to be like Hey, let's use the technology to be able to explore ideas at home in the privacy of our home, own home. But when we're out in public, let's like not be in technology. Let's actually be connected to both the earth and other people that are there or using the technology to be able to mediate and facilitate those connections. Because I think that in the in the western mind, we have this very linearized way of thinking about the world as, as us as individuals and in some ways that's a function of our language of the the reducing things into individual words and nouns and pronouns and like just the way that the language is structured lends itself to be reductive in the way of reducing things into its components parts and you, that's you have to speak the language and it, it it drives a certain mode of thinking and that's the western mind but the eastern mind has been developed through like ideograms and uh tonations with less words but you have to full you have to see the full context of how the words are related to other things to see the full meaning of that and it's written up and down rather than left and right and so just overall it's this like holistic way of thinking and i think as a technology both virtual reality and augmented reality and artificial intelligence they're they're teaching us to have this more holistic understanding of how things are related to each other and the hero's journey of the myths and the stories, that's a very young archetypal journey. And I expect that we're going to be developing what this yin archetypal journey looks like. What is the, the, the stories by which that you are told and that, that you're more centered in your own direct experience, but also in relationship to the earth and everybody around you. And that's the yin element of the, the Tao, the Taoist sort of the Tao to chain of, of like the, the way of really just being connected. And I think that. Um, I don't think we'll get there by 2025, but I think that by 2045, we have a chance of really having this larger, deep cultural shift of us like changing the way that we even look at technology And so as you sort of extrapolate out what that means in each of the different domains, um, I think that's sort of yet to be seen um, in terms of how that impacts all the different domains of human experience, all the different contexts of experience. But overall, I see that we're storytelling creatures and we want to be immersed into story and we want to be fully engaged. And we also want to be inspired by these platonic ideals about what the underlying structures of reality are. Uh, And to have a direct participatory interaction with them and not be sort of didactically lectured at, but to be in the process of co-creation. And I think that is the it's the Kairos time. It's the flow states. It's like we're just starting to see like the early indications of how this is changing behavior with people who are the early adopters. And I think uh, we can start to extrapolate out by maybe there's there are bigger clusters of people that are really able to get attuned into their um, embodied experiences uh, and then further out by 2045, even more. But like philosophically, what I would say is that like our center of gravity right now is in this Aristotelian way of sort of uh, doing reductive materialism. And that as we move to 2025 20, and 2045, we're going to have these platonic... Uh, philosophies of like the mythic archetypal mythological embodied intuitive um the spiritual the ensouled universe the anima mundi the magic um all of these things that are of the essence of the kairos time and the magic of the serendipity of what it feels like to be on vacation without any plans uh, that is going to be like changing the entire culture and i think that just like uh facino was like translating the texts of Plato, and those texts of Plato were re-inspiring a new generation of the Renaissance painters and the artists and the creators, I think we're at a time in history right now where we need to go back to the Platonic tradition to translate it, to, to reintegrate it, and to infuse it into our art, and that will lead us into a new Renaissance.
0: I am um, with you, and I, I, I feel like there's going to be a portion of the population that is going to look at someone wearing the HMD. And feel like that is not human, that it's dehumanizing us, that it's taking away our humanity. But it's kind of intuitive because it's actually, in my mind, it's making us more human, helping us experience um, humanity in a whole new, in new way. I, I, I relate to the story that one time I was in VR chat and I was, I was, I was particularly. Anxious about talking to people that day, and I remember having this random interaction with a robot, uh, someone wearing a robot avatar, and we hugged each other without saying a single word. And I remember feeling like this, like this proprioceptive effect, like it almost felt, it it felt real, and it was, and it, and it felt human. The most importantly, and I, I, and and so we're already seeing. Glimpses of that, you know, next level of connection right now. And I think it's only going to get more and more deep and deeply intertwined with who we are. And, you know, I have one last question for you. And, and, and you being uh, an expert in both these subjects, I feel like this is the perfect question to sort of end things on. What do you think is going to be the relationship between virtual reality and the singularity?
1: Well, so again, um, this is, um, <laughs> So, the singularity um, is born amongst a reductive materialism paradigm that exalts uh, this ideal that humans and like machines are going to be greater than humans. I think that's a faulty way of looking at, at technology. I think technology is a tool that we use and that we, it will always be in service of of humanity, and that there's a certain amount of us exalting sort of the empirical idea of like the the ultimate intelligent being as almost being a God. Um, And there's a danger of that where we start to um, basically steal data from humans in order to train AI in order to like exalt this God creation. Um, So (laughs) I think that, this There's a lot of philosophers that have you know Nick bolstrom's talked about the you know super intelligent explosion, and I think it's a it's a philosophical idea, but like at this point, most of the uh researchers that I talk to in um artificial intelligence and I've done about a hundred interviews now. They're not so concerned about this sort of uh, super intelligent explosion um, point because they see it as just so far away that uh, they're kind of only looking at the pragmatic issues that are in front of them right now. But at the same time, there are a lot of ethical implications about the continual development of AI. And there's like people like Miles Brundage, who uh, is at Oxford and has collaborated with people like OpenAI that have been looking at like the dual uses of AI, the It's basically navigating the thing that I was talking about earlier, which is like how the physicists eventually came and developed the atom bomb, that the uh, chemists developed the chemical weapons and dynamite. And now computer scientists and creating AI, there's all these existential threats by which that we're going to potentially create a technology that's going to destroy ourselves in some way, either deliberately or unintentionally. And so what are those dual-use technologies? How do we ethically navigate that? How do you balance, like, this process by which you have an open-source ethic uh, within the artificial intelligence so that you can basically read the source code and and see that there's nothing uh, malicious that's going on? But at the end of the day, I see AI as, like, this experiential technology. Like, you have to give it an experience of the data to really train it. So in that respect, it's like having an embodied experience of like just the way that you're training yourself to be able to play Audio Shield or Beat Saber where you're able to kind of unconsciously do things. That's kind of what AI is doing is you're you're training it to be able to unconsciously um, use these neural network architectures to be able to make subjective decisions that are sometimes unexplainable. Um, and it's in that process of being unexplainable that uh, we don't fully have a, a linearized way to have a logic system that's going to be able to predict or control what happens. So I expect that, um, when I talked to Rao Kamapade, and I was really trying to get to him the essence of intelligence, and I was like, I went in there thinking, okay, there's a left brain, there's a right brain, there's like subjective and qualitative. And he's like, no, 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 there's like, There's different dimensions of the next generation of the Turing test, and they, they basically are in some of these different categories. There's like manipulative intelligence, and so how you're able to sort of express your agency and interact with the world and learn about the world through interacting with it. There's the cognitive uh, intelligence, which is what we typically associate with intelligence, but also social intelligence. So how do you navigate and interact with different people? There's perceptual intelligence, so being able to actually uh, observe the world uh, and what's happening. And that's going to be embodied through robotics in different ways and these different manifestations of, of, of technology. And then there's emotional intelligence, which um also has dealing with how does technology relate to humans if um, humans are emotional beings then how do you mimic all the things that humans need in order to relate to sort of a, a technology in some sort of either ways that are sensitive to the context or the emotions that are happening and that to me is sort of got mapped over to the elements of the manipulative intelligence being the fire the social and cognitive intelligence being the air the um earth element being the perceptual intelligence and the robotics as well as the um, uh, water element being emotional intelligence. So I feel like uh, by looking at AI, we have to really start to define what is intelligence, like what are those next-generation Turing tests. So like, then the idea of the singularity that it starts to explode faster than we can control it and everything, um, I think that is actually... A potential where um things are changing so rapidly that we we can't keep up with it. At the end of the day, it's going to be centered in the human experience, I think. And I think that's that's a little bit of the, the philosophical metaphysical assumptions that if you do like reductive materialism that you could you could think of it as this entity that is like this God. And we are humans are merely serving of this external God. But if you really look at it as like, you know, consciousness is primary that we're all like uh, it's like the human experience is the most important thing. Then at some point, the the A.I. is only always going to be in service of making humans have a better experience on the planet and just making our lives better. And by and far, when I talk to uh, artificial intelligence, like researchers they're way more in the realm of looking at how this is a technology that is a tool, uh, that it's more of like a painting. It'd be like, uh, what happens if you make a painting and the painting's so real that you get escaped into reality? Well, it's always going to be a painting. It's always going to be a con- construct that is going to be controlled and mediated by people, but also culture is always changing. Intelligence is always changing. And so what is the technical debt? How do you keep things like up- updated and implemented? And so, Um, it's more of a conversation that we have to be in with AI and that as we're in that conversation with AI, it's actually going to be reflecting things back to ourselves where we're going to like, we have this uh, like vision of like, we're these these rational machines, but actually we have so much of like um, our embodiment and our perception and our worldviews and our belief systems and our subjectivity that is like filtering our worldview. And I think that AI is just going to make that explicit. Um so as we move forward I think the big the bigger challenge is how do you deal with the fracturing of society where you have these different reality bubbles of people and how are you going to come up with some sort of way to be able to interface people uh that are in completely different like ontological realities of of like what what is actually happening in the moment and I think that going into the experiential age has the risk of like actually making that way worse like, we're, we're going to be way more, like, just completely, like, dissociated into, like, our own reality bubbles. We have social media reality bubbles now, but now we're going to have, like, literal, like, overlaying of reality, reality bubbles that people are going to be able to sort of have their own sort of reality that they're in. And so how how, how do you sort of navigate that and i think the answer is uh, moving away from the aristotelian way of like just a direct empiricism uh still still taking into account the objective facts and the data and everything that's happening but also how do you interface with the platonic realms of reality Uh, and i think the math community is actually a really great example of this where people in the math community they can have completely different metaphysical assumptions and Um, Just worldviews about what the nature of mathematical objects are whether they're created whether they're invented whether it's social constructed or whether you know it's some sort of like eternal realm beyond space time and as long as they agree on the axiomatic assumptions of what reality is they're able to collaborate with each other and it's not really all that big of a deal it becomes more of a matter of you knowing where to look at and to see what reality might be like girdle was a, a huge believer of the platonic realm, and that caused him to basically study and look for a, a logical proof that it, that basically proves that any mathematical system is either going to be consistent and or complete, one or the other. You can't have both a complete and consistent mathematical system, so you have to choose one or the other. And so, because most systems choose consistency, it's always going to be incomplete, which means that there's this never-ending aspect of, of life and reality that is constantly being generated which means that the part of the challenge of of being a human into this next era is being able to have a plurality of being able to see lots of different perspectives and worldviews and uh systems of logic and experiences and belief systems and to have this plurality of metaphysical assumptions of things that we are in this platonic realm that we can't know for sure but we have a direct experience of it and so as we infuse people with that direct experience, it's going to be those myths and those stories and those math structures that are, are going to be some, in some ways, kind of like this unifying factor. That there's going to be some things that everybody can agree upon. So that's sort of what I see is that like there's there's the dimensions of AI, but there's these deeper sort of cultural shifts that I think that um, there's this dialectic between the empirical reality and the reality that is you know numinous and sort of eternal and timeless and the Platonic the realms, and that. Like if anything, we're sort of infusing more of the platonic reality and we have to sort of know how to balance that between the the, the sort of direct empirical. And it's like just this holistic balance between the yang and the yin at at, at its core.
0: Yeah, I can't I could go on for another couple hours, but things but we we have to keep things uh uh yeah, we have to we, I'm sorry, we have to keep things uh we got to bring things down to so a close. Can't <laughs> I, I, I do you have any final comments? Um anything you want to leave the listeners with?
1: Well, um I do I am supported by Patreon um solely. Um I'm trying to really live into this yen currency of of being supported by the community and um, anybody that can give any, amount of money that helps a lot to allow me to continue to do this kind of deep dive research uh, community service uh, by doing these interviews and sharing them out. So you can go to patreon.com slash voices of VR. Um, also, I'm at voices of VR, voices of AI, voices of math coming soon, um, and as well as esoteric voices. Um, but um, Chris, I just want to thank you also for having me on the podcast and, you know, being a seed of inspiration for me back in 2014 and to engage me in the conversation. Conversation and a dialectic because you know that conversation that we had back in 2014 was a huge part of me feeling accepted within the community but also wanting to contribute and and to basically do what you were doing which was to engage in conversations with people and so um you've been a, a catalyst for me within the vr industry and uh um yeah i just want to thank you for for your podcast and what you've uh, been able to do with, with having these in-depth conversations with people in the industry
0: I can't uh, begin to appreciate the words you've just said. I, I, yeah, you're, you, sir, are a true scholar and gentleman of virtual reality. Always have been, always will be. Um, and you truly are, like, adding immense, immense value to this industry and the, the progress of the and, the and the advancement of this technology. So... So I'm I'm just glad that we I get to brush shoulders with with someone like that. So so thanks, man. And um, yeah, how can people stay in touch and follow all the things you're doing? Please support Kent on Patreon. He's fucking awesome, guys. <laughs>
1: um there i have a on twitter is probably my most active um @kentby um where i have a lot of the, just tweeting about the i uh, engage a lot in the conversations with people and actually um if you uh want to dm me there that's a good way i do have a discord community that's also um for patreon supporters Um, and I'm thinking about doing more live streaming and lecturing and stuff like that moving forward. And so, um, I'll be sort of experimenting, like experimenting, um, being engaged in the Socratic dialogue, uh, like Socrates never wrote anything down. So I feel a little bit like that Socratic element, but I also want to potentially write uh, a book about all of this um, stuff, all these frameworks and ideas and stuff. And so um, potentially tentatively titled The Ultimate Potential of VR. Um, But yeah, as I move forward, I'm going to be sort of really trying to figure out um, how to do all that I have and want to do. My ambition far outweighs the time that i have um so but i, I do want to continue to be engaged but if you follow me follow me on twitter at Kentby, and uh yeah that's probably the best way to keep in touch and then yeah definitely if you enjoy this um support me on patreon and you know chris you should have a patreon too you should have uh, the ability to allow people to support the work that you're doing here with intervr um but um it's it's such a liberating feeling to be able to just be supported by the community to be able to do this type of of research and conversation so um if if people have the capacity and you've enjoyed these conversations or enjoyed the podcast then support me and when chris starts his you should support him as well
0: (laughs) i i you know and the thing about patreon is that man it's like how did you get over the anxiety at first of like putting yourself out there like you last question i'm sorry but i have to ask you like how did you get over the anxiety of putting yourself out there in the first place with patreon patreon
1: I I can't begin to uh, explain how difficult it was for me to ask for money. Um, It's not easy. Um, And especially, I mean, there's all sorts of like, you know, identity and rejection and being supported by the community. It's very vulnerable to like, um, to basically like quit everything and to rely on the goodwill of people to do that. Um, And, I've had a lot of money that I've uh, like saved up from my previous uh, jobs, and so there was a bit of a runway and buffer. And it takes a long time to really get that. But I think that there actually there was a, a moment at Oculus Connect too where I was really kind of at the breaking point where I had exhausted all my ability to get sponsors. And having sponsors of people that you're covering in the industry, it it gets weird. Uh, I agree. There's 100%. there's implicit bias. I and, speak
0: from experience. I agree.
1: You know, it, yeah, I just had a number of experiences where I, I found myself self-censoring when I wouldn't have had I not been in, I didn't even have him as a sponsor. It was like one of the major companies. And then I just found that I wasn't speaking openly and freely. And so it's really quite uh, important to to have that type of support, to do that type of uh, journalism uh, without having the undue influence of advertisers. In it. And I think that's a challenge that a lot of um, journalistic institutions deal with by having like a separation of the business within the journalism. But as a one man entity doing the journalism, it gets a lot more confused. So um, but it is it is extremely vulnerable to ask for help. And I think that um, we're still like used to getting everything for free. And I think that like we're just now starting to see like the downfalls of the surveillance-based capitalism institutions like google and facebook who are surveilling and capturing all your data like we're mortgaging our privacy for the future and creating like a dystopian like nosedive type of situation with like the black mirror nosedive episode where you're raiding everybody and objectifying people and when you have that type of world you start to self-censor um and you're not able to freely express yourself and so this concept of self-sovereign identity and privacy and not recording everything and being able to have private spaces, that fourth amendment really is crucial for the first amendment. And I think it's, it's also true for, for journalism where we live in a a very young capitalistic culture where everybody has to be an entrepreneurial businessman. And in order to do that, then you have to sort of, you know, uh, pay for it, like charge for everything. And I, and the, the interchange for journalism and information is that it's a yin currency. The more information I give out, the more information I get. And by introducing different business models into that, it just sort of pollutes the whole exchange. And so it's like philosophically and energetically, it makes sense for people to like support these types of independent journalism initiatives because it gives me the freedom to be able to have the latitude to be able to to really do the in-depth coverage that i'm able to do and to have these long extended conversations like you know similar to what you're doing um you know you're you're the inter vr tends to be a lot more sort of metaphysical and spiritual and philosophical and looking at you know the deeper implications of it and i'm doing that um but Mostly also focusing on, like, immersive storytelling and the different applications and the experiential design frameworks and what's new, what's different, what are people doing, what are people wanting to do. Uh, Just trying to track the evolution of this communication medium over the last, you know, four years uh, and then on to the, the immediate future. And in order for me to do that, I really need people's support to continue to do that. So. Um, yeah. Thanks for uh, allowing me to to explain a little bit more why this is important because um, if we actually really do want to create the society that we want to live in, um, That does isn't just everything being driven by money and people trying to take you for all your worth by stealing all your data and exploiting and manipulating and controlling you, then um, there's got to be other alternative news sources that are out there that are providing this type of information as well as education because – Education is a similar thing where education should be free, it should be available, you shouldn't have to pay for it, and people should just be able to have access to the knowledge that they need to be able to uh, do everything that they can within the industry.
0: Good, sir. Ket, by. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your wisdom. I will see you in the metaverse. We'll leave you at that.
1: Okay, thanks, Chris.